This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Okay, so we're going to resume our discussion talking about um, the, the trust that we call by different names uh, that we use to gift assets to children but keep it out of their dirty little hands so they don't use it gambling on drugs, loose women, loose men, yeah. that kind of thing. So I call it a children's trust. No fun trust. trust. <laughs> no fun trust. So I call it a children's trust. I've heard somebody else call it a cutoff trust. Um, whatever name you want to go by, that's what we're going to uh, begin our discussion with here, and Paul's going to take the lead on that. Uh, it, uh, the more we're doing in trust work, the more uh, it becomes more and more evident that this is not easy stuff. There's so many moving parts involved. I'm starting to wonder how many trusts is an appropriate number, even in, in a pretty straightforward matter. Do we have a separate trust for the house alone that's not income only? Um, and if it's sold later, how are we going to handle the capital gains trust? We were just talking here, one of the things trying to look down the road where things are moving in Medicaid, where we can't forget the tax world. When we're looking at trust and we're so, and the residence is in there or some appreci highly appreciated assets are in there, we're so worried about how are we going to get step up in basis or with regards to the house, how are we going to get a section 121 um, capital gains exclusion? I'm always wondering, you know, when we need to do this, is there going to be a section 121 capital gains exclusion? I mean, that might not be around when we need it. And then if we haven't designed the trust correctly and there's no exclusion and the house is sold, we have a big capital gains tax due and our clients have the, no ability to pay it, what are we going to do? So, you know, I, I don't claim to have the answers, but, uh, you know, uh, it's just um, something we're always concerned about. And I just also wanted to touch on whenever we're dealing with the residents, which isn't my particular section here, but... You know, is there a mortgage on the property? If it's going into an irrevocable, not non-income only, no income trust, I don't think it falls within the the Garn Saint Germain um, exception, and I think that could trigger the due on transfer clause. So that's something I'm always concerned about. Uh, continuing the real estate property exemption, it's not in most places in Massachusetts, but there's uh, a handful of places. It's very important that that's looked at. And continue with the home reverse mortgage issues. So, and, and inability to get that if the house is completely in that trust. Um, it seems to have more viability if we retain a life estate with the home. So these are various things we're, I'm always concerned about and we're looking at. With regards to the, the children's trust, I think um, the concern always with that is a step transaction. So uh, as long as this isn't done all at the same time, um, hopefully that would buttress that type of argument, assuming the step transaction issue isn't there. And that's, um, I think they're viable. Uh, my question always from a lot of the reasons we do these types of trusts is to protect the assets from the, the children's creditors or um, divorcing spouses and what have you from an asset protection perspective, I'm always wondering how well they'd even hold up in that context. I could see a child going bankrupt after setting one of these up, and a bankruptcy trustee may be even claiming, looking at these trusts, 
uh, possibility of some type of an asset of the bankrupt uh, estate. So I think from a Medicaid perspective, step transaction aside, they certainly would be viable in Massachusetts. Could you please explain what you mean by children's trust? Because I initially oh. thought that this was a trust where the elder would transfer property into a trust for the benefit of the children without any retained interest. Right. And I hear you talking about uh, a step transaction, and it sounds like something very different. I apologize. You're right. I thought we were talking about... Uh, we're just going to repeat the question, Paul. Yes. Uh, I was talking about a children's trust. But there's basically two ways that you could make the transfer and use the trust. So Paul's talking about a situation where the parent gifts to the kids, and then the kids create the trust and put the asset in there. That's sometimes done. Or you can do it where the, the parents gift directly into a trust of which the parents have no interest. So right. I think he's going to talk about both. Right. Both um, maybe, maybe it'd be helpful, just a suggestion on the gift to the children, children set up the trust. Maybe we call that a third-party children's trust. Mm -hmm. Just to distinguish it for everybody today, right. I use different language altogether on sure, describing sure. these, so I can appreciate the confusion. And I wasn't even going to talk about that, but that was uh, seemed to be a little bit of where this was going. That is not part of the fact pattern, so I guess I want to return, other than, than just what I mentioned with regards to the Children's Trust, to the fact pattern where there was a transfer of assets to an irrevocable trust uh, more than five years ago um, by Ellen and Portia. I think in that context that we are, you know, I think that we are... Once again, boilerplate aside, issues aside, I think that that fact pattern would work fine. The grantor trust language so that we get capital gains uh, and, um, to our clients and income associated with, generated from that trust to our clients, it's a concern. I don't know that we necessarily would want that in one of these. So we actually have to be very careful when we draft these trusts that they're non-grantor trusts in many circumstances especially this fact pattern. If we had transferred a house to that trust, maybe we do want a grantor trust. How do we do that? I, I, I think the, the standard uh, 675-4, which is reacquired trust corpus, is one we've typically done in the past. Once again, now I'm getting nervous about that one. I'm hearing from other states that some courts have started to look at that. Um, was there a Florida case that actually went against that? Does anyone know about that? Someone had mentioned that to me. No. Against the uh, reacquire language. Uh, are you aware of any case like that, Marty? So, uh, you know, I think Colorado is being very aggressive, and I think that Colorado may have had a case where the ability to reacquire principal, substitute principal of equivalent value, was was a, a problem. But I'm I'm a little over my head here in terms of remembering the facts of that. Okay. But once again, um, so looking very closely at that, and uh, you know, when do we use these type of trusts? Different circumstances. Um, one of the things we've been looking at, certainly with VA aid and attendance, we are looking at these type of trusts. In those circumstances, it's not the fact pattern here, but we often will look at non-income Trusts. We don't want income. I don't typically even want that to be a grantor trust because it'll show up on their tax return, the client's tax return, um, which, which I believe the VA will look at. So I'm a little reluctant to even have those. Um, we certainly can do it in Medicaid planning. You know, a big concern with all this is financial aid planning. If we just transferred assets outright to children, 
could that impact their the grandchildren's ability to get financial aid? Um, where if we can put it into a trust, that will minimize it. There's certainly the asset protection component of doing it this way. Uh, some control issues that we can do. Um, Suzanne even mentioned, I haven't done it, but uh, ability to uh, get the GAFC SIG um, using a non-income irrevocable trust. Uh, so there, there's a variety of uses within there. Uh, but certainly um, the same that holds true for income-only trusts generally will hold true for non-income-only trusts. We really have to be careful that boilerplate and and Doherty, I think, really got us to revisit boilerplate um, to make sure things are are not in there. Um, so, would would um, you typically would you anybody use this type of trust to hold the home? I usually would yeah. use the income only trust to hold the home, but um, I suppose you could use this type of trust with a reserved life estate. So it's basically like giving the, the property to the children, a deed with a life estate, except you do it by way of a trust. So again, to try to protect the home from the children's creditors, uh, means of the children's creditors, and the parents could reserve a life estate on the deed. Do, do, do people do that? Um, in Connecticut, we're concerned about trust. I have often thought it would be lovely if we could do a trust like that, um, but I've not found any clients willing to take on the risk that the Department of Social Services, seeing the word trust, um, it's like a, a red cape in front of a bull. They see red and, and they just they trust, same, same reaction. Well, what and about that if, if uh, the parents deeded the property directly to the children, yeah. uh, keeping a life estate, and then the children turned around and they deeded it to their own trust? Um, we have not had that. I've done it for, for other purposes with money where we've had a separate um, trust funded by children. It's very infrequent. Usually children will, um, and again, I like to keep it simple and, and keep trusts out of it. Um, some Usually children will put money in a bank account that requires two or three signatures. There are non-trust ways of, of handling that that seem to work better. Um, <clears throat> we've not had really... <clears throat> that much concern because the life use protects the parent if the children want protection um, they usually haven't figured it out yet we do look at estate planning for the children um, sometimes in their people children die before their parents and um, they often forget that this can happen people may die in the wrong order so we try to make certain that the children go to their council and get estate plans done, or they may put their interest in a trust for the benefit of whatever, but I've left that up to the children. Okay. Um, getting back to that point, and ch children, one of the reasons I, I, if we, if I feel comfortable, I like using trust, is there's two cases in my firm that people came to us with these circumstances, life estate, children, remainder. Um, in one case, they didn't die out of order. One of the children um, is now in a nursing home at 55 and did not have any estate planning and is now uh, has a guardianship. Um, uh, elder wants to sell the house. There's three children. Two of the children are fine. They're more than they're reluctantly willing to pay any capital gains associated with that return proceeds to mom to downsize. We can't do that with the, the child that has a guardian. I mean, it, it, 
there's no way that money will be returned. Um, and questionable whether they'll even sign off on the sale and have to pay any capital gains. That just so. And then we had another case with the life estate where the beneficiary was a single child and that child went bankrupt. And it was in New York and um, they ended up, uh, the trustee claimed that as an asset of the estate, so the bankrupt estate. So the, the remainder interest, mm-hmm. even though it had not matured? Exactly. And, and what kind of value was placed on it? Uh, they went, I think they were going to trustee sale. How can you? Oh, in New York, you could force the sale. You could. Because in Connecticut, partition won't work for a life estate. Well, you couldn't partition it, but you know, in the the circumstances, the elder was quite old, so someone could buy the remainder interest, presumably at a low, you know, fairly reasonable value, and just wait out and then own the property. Yeah, and that's that's different. One of the things we've considered for children is um, having them form an LLC because oftentimes that's just a good business way to own real estate. When you have two or three or four children owning the family home, it establishes a managing um, member and um, rules to, to deal with it. And that's something to think about. LLCs can provide some kind of protection um, for children, not perfect. I, I've had some experience in, in um, estate planning cases where a limited partnership, um, a child went bankrupt. Um, but for $10,000, we bought out the trustee on a multi-million dollar property. Connecticut so. would consider an LLC to be a trust-like... Well, this is the remainder interest I think New of Jersey the children. Would. I think you know, yeah. New Jersey would consider an LLC to be a trust-like instrument and treat it as a you're talking about just the children making the LLC. Yeah, yeah, having the children, having nothing to do with the parent, but what the children do with their interest um, later on. I We haven't had the state look at that, um, particularly if it has nothing to do with the parents. It's, mm-hmm. it's just their way of, of management. The other options are general or limited partnerships, but LLCs tend to be a more efficient way. And if you're not the manager, there is um, some argument that your interest can't be liquidated easily. So it might be some protection that's, that's quite legitimate and is the way people normally own properties together for totally non-Medicaid reasons. Right. Sure. Uh, just getting back to the irrevocable trust, at, um, a little bit of a pitch because I'm on the board, but at our last Mass NALA dinner meeting, um, it was on the Doherty case, which was an irrevocable income-only trust case in Massachusetts. Um, where the assets were found to be uh, accountable. Uh, discussion on the panel up uh, at that meeting, um, one of the things that was mentioned and I further discussed with one of the panelists was an irrevocable uh, trust, grantor trust, for income tax purposes, to own the home and the, um, the, the clients paying rent for that as a way of shifting additional assets over a period of time. Um, and yet there wouldn't be any income tax associated with it because of being a grantor trust. So just a way of continuing to give liquid assets that they may have at the end of time without being treated as a gift. So another thought behind that. Uh, but we always have to get back to what is our client trying to accomplish, what could be some of the issues down the road. Once again, the reverse mortgage issue seems to be coming up more and more with people and um, we just have to be aware of that and the issues associated with that, too. So, Vincent, I know you use these uh, third, these children's trusts, these cut-off trusts, quite a bit. Tell us how, they, how that works in New York. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening to all this great conversation, and I'm saying, why? Why, or why get into all of these? 
I, got, I do it this way, but then I have to draft all these protective provisions to protect against a problem that maybe we've created by getting too sophisticated. And, and so I don't, my philosophy is I don't trust children. I'm sorry, I don't trust children. I think we're all gonna be litigators in the next 10 years because all the children now are fighting with each other over, over what their parents are leaving them or they're holding it for them while they're alive. So I just do not like the idea of transferring property out to children unless I have one child who's a loving, caring human being. All right? With the multi-million okay. dollars of their own. That's, that's right. Now, he doesn't want the right. say, I want my inheritance yeah. now. Right. So, so my uh, thought on this is we transfer assets into these irre irrevocable trusts, discretionary income back out to family members other than the grantor, uh, we could put a discretionary provision in principle. We could talk about how we limit or, or broaden those discretions, who the trustee is, um, who the ultimate beneficiaries are. But by doing it, we're never putting assets in the children's name, which now subjects the, those assets to creditor problems, the disability or death of the child, uh, the trustworthiness of that child. We don't have laws in place to protect the grantor when there's been an outright gift. We've got capital gains tax issues. I mean, I'm going over what Paul has expressed. And so we use these discretionary trusts. They work wonderful, wonderfully uh, in New York. Now, do you typically, um, do, do people typically uh, retain a testamentary power of appointment in the grantor so that she can, you know, pick and choose those children as the love comes and goes? Yeah, we do. We, we do. We put testamentary power of appointments in basically all of our trusts in this area. And that's partially to make it an incomplete gift. Yeah, makes it an incomplete right. gift, and it also gives some strings back to the grantor, where the grantor cannot benefit directly, so I think we're on solid ground from a legal position, whether that, you know, states want to follow the law is a different issue, uh, and so that, that's our approach in New York. Termination provision, like you don't, based on the grantor, I assume because that would show why, why does it matter when the grantor dies. So the question is, what's the termination yeah. provision? I, I typically do something like the sooner of 99 years or the death of mom. Why have the parent if it's really not being held for the benefit of the parent, except this limited power appointment? What do other people do? Well, if you're in Rhode Island where we have no rule against perpetuities, you can make it a dynastic trust. So they're really popular vehicles. But since the uh, DRA 06, where there's no disadvantage, five versus three years, gifts to individuals versus gifts to trust, I'm hard-pressed to find a reason not to use them. They, uh, you know, we can have our, our clients act as trustees. They can go on um, uh, in perpetuity. And again, with the downturn in the economy, uh, I've seen lots of adult children in the construction business, for example, get sued. And these trusts actually um, and credit or so they never terminated Rhode Island. One, one thing to point out is that um, if the scenario is that the, 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 the trapdoor provision in the trust, you know, the discretionary distributions of principle are going to enable the parents to uh, deal with uh, Medicaid application within five years. Mm -hmm. Say they do end up in the nursing home. We have to realize that if the child has had a creditor problem or is anticipating a creditor problem, um, they may not be able to be distributees of the assets and then give it to their parents. 
um, and you know, because there's a creditor out there. And even if they go ahead and do that, there may be a bankruptcy involved that pulls the assets back in out of the parents' uh, uh, estate. And, and, and so, you know, it can be more complicated than that. But it, but at least we're as long as there are no distributions, uh, or if we have a or if we have uh, lifetime beneficiaries who don't have creditor problems, we, we've done something good by having that in place. But there, e, e, you know, even the best planning can be thwarted by someone's bankruptcy. So are you, are you suggesting that you don't use discretionary distributions at all? No, I do. I do. I, I, have, I have it in there, um, but recognizing that, um, that even with the best planning we can do, if the child has creditor problems at the time or before the uh, distributions are needed, or um, or within ten years after, actually, they're, they're, because there's the new bankruptcy code can pull things back for ten years. Sure. So we all this great planning may get undone by someone's bankruptcy. But going back to her question about termination, um, I, if I'm if I'm mistaken your question, just please let me know. I think her question was, you know, why wait till the, the time, you know, why can't the trust terminate prior, if it's out of the five-year look-back period, why can't it terminate prior to the death of, you know? Well, yeah, my concern was, you know, I struggle with drafting these things because I, um, in regards to the bankruptcy issue, I, I say that the overall goal is to be equal for the children, but you don't have to. So that if the trustee does decide it's better to give to these two trusted kids are going to turn around and give the mom to do it. But my concern is how to terminate it when they really want it to end the death of this, the grantor's death, you know, at the parent's death. But you don't want to say that because why should the grantor's, if it was a gift outright and they have no interest and it's not an, um, a trust indirectly, why would it terminate at the, at the grantor's death, in a sense, you know, the mom's or the dad's death? So I just didn't know what you guys used for terminating provision when really that's the goal. Okay, um, I, I think you're asking two questions at the same time. Uh, the question is, uh, is there a concern about using the parent's death as a termination provision from a Medicaid standpoint? And two, uh, from a practical standpoint, why use that, that um, trigger or, or termination type provision? So from a Medicaid standpoint, at least my position would be it's not relevant. You, you know, so I, I don't think it even comes into the discussion of Medicaid attacking the trust because you've used the grantor's life as the trigger for a termination. From a practical standpoint, I get back to you know, you know, just why are we doing all of this? All right, we're doing it because we have an, an unfair healthcare system. We don't cover people for long-term care, and but for the system, people would hold on to their assets, they would keep control and not give away their assets while they're alive, right? Anyone in the room want to give away their assets? Raise their hand at any point in time. No, no. So, so, so the reason why we use the parent's life as the trigger when they die is that we want to keep those assets all intact in one place in the most protective way while they're living, just in case we need to get to them to help them out. And that's why we do it. But is that somehow proof that there's really a trust for the parents out there, even though the parents aren't? No, it's, it's, I think it's a non-issue. 
years. Yeah, and you know, literally thousands of trusts in probably all of our states where, well, I shouldn't say that, thousands of trusts in New York have been approved. It's, it's a non-issue. Some, you know, what I'm hearing from other states is, you know, crazy. So, well, so it's a question. Sorry, so I'm just going to repeat the question for the, for the tape. Um, the question is, um, what do the panelists think in terms of using the parent's death as a termination um, event on the trust? Would that cause a problem with your Medicaid agency? And why don't we just go through? We heard from Vincent. Um, Deborah, what about Connecticut? Um, well, aside from the fact, if, if you're outside the five-year look-back and the parents have no interest in the trust, I think it works. Most yeah. of my clients at that point just would say, I can't take the risk of giving up any access to my assets for five years, period, and, and that's, that's that. Mary. New Jersey, if you're outside the five-year look-back period, they're not even going to see the trust, so I don't see it as an issue. If there's no retained rights to the grantor, and the grantor is applying for Medicaid, I don't think it's so, an issue. So just uh, in your application doesn't say, are you the grantor of any trust? No, it does not. Okay. If they were receiving a benefit from the trust, it would have to be disclosed. Sure. Diane? Um, well, we've got, probably it would not be an issue if it's outside the five-year look-back and there's no continuing strain to the parent. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Uh, what we have is something similar in our regulation language, I think, to what Rhode Island has, which is language that says, if the trustee executed, used all of his discretion and the assets could be reached under any circumstances, then the trust becomes an includable asset. Right, but that And that be... language made me wonder for a long time whether we could even use income-only trusts in Vermont, because after all, the principal is the underlying asset to the income stream. Right. But our department has clearly said that income-only trusts are acceptable. Susan? I think out of the five-year look-back period, it's not an issue. Plus, I'm convinced I, I wouldn't trust the children. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. Except if you're the child, of course. No, no. I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, not all parents believe that their children are different, but, you know, and I see it more and more, you know, um, from a probate perspective, there's more and more infighting between families. Um, so I, I just, I don't rec ever recommend it. In Rhode Island, not a problem to set distributions to, to the grant like that. Um, I don't, I haven't heard of it being an issue in Massachusetts. We don't necessarily have the, um, the benefit of after five years we don't have to disclose it. It is a question on the, on the Mass Health Medicaid application and grantor. The, back to the trustee issue, it asks if you are a trustee of any trust. So they're looking for <coughs> these, these trusts and looking at them. So I don't see it as an issue, but now you got me thinking. <laughs> All right, and Marty, why don't you let us know about Maine and then take us into the primary residence discussion. Okay. Um, yeah, Maine uh, doesn't have any overt question on the Maine Care application at all about trusts. It does ask if you have an interest in real estate um, of any kind. So if you have any kind of interest in it, uh, you have to disclose that. Um, and if you have to disclose all of your assets and all of your sources of income. Um, but uh, there's no, nothing saying have you ever established a trust, you know, sort of like in, in an income tax, a death, uh, a, 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 an estate tax return right. type of question. Uh, so I don't think it would come up after five years if you have no retained interest at all. Can I, can I just make a, a quick point too? With trust planning, I think, and, and with what we're talking about here in the society we live in, an important component to consider putting into any trust is some independent party, a trustee, or, or someone else, 
being able to move the situs of the trust and what laws dictate over the trust. Having some language in there I think is very important. Both the family members are living in a different state and our clients may move to that state to be, or having the, parent, the children moving the client to that state. And maybe even as a, uh, especially for folks living in Massachusetts, opportunities as planners to move them to a much better state like Rhode Island. Um, uh, uh, and then we only have a two-hour ride to go visit mom or dad at, at, at work. So just something to consider. Depends on where you live. Okay. You have questions then? Oh, can we t- just hold the questions until the, the, the end? Thanks. Okay. Um, I, I have the questions about the primary residence, and they, my comments are on page 37. Will the fact that the primary residence is more than $750,000 be a factor, even though it is in the trust? No, um, because it, because the transfer was before the look-back date, uh, we don't have a problem with that at all. Um, discuss the practice in your state regarding reservation of a life estate on the deed uh, when conveying primary residence to a re- irrevocable trust. Uh, what about reservation of a special power appointment on the deed? Well, um, a, uh, a life estate reserved on or in the deed funded the trust is a countable asset. Um, it's a countable asset if you have conveyed the remainder interest directly to, to your children or somebody else as well. Um, but Maine does honor intent to return home uh, without any condition to that. So it doesn't have to be at all practical that the person could return home. So just, in fact, they've made it a checkbox now on the application form. Do, do, do you intend to return home at some point in the future? Check yes, the house is exempt. So you don't have to, or the life estate interest is, is exempt. Now, I had one case where the house was essentially condemned, and we were trying to get um, the, uh, actually the son, who was the remainderman of the life estate, and I had not prepared that, um, uh, uh, wanted to renovate the house, and it had severe mold problems. And, um, and we tried to get permission from DHHS to release the life estate, and uh, they wouldn't let that be done. So we just had to check, box, check the box, or maybe at that point we did a letter. I can't remember when it was. Um, but um, uh, the house, the life estate is exempt. The sun basically can't do anything with the house. It's just going to get moldier and moldier. And then eventually, if it doesn't fall down before the woman dies, um, uh, he'll work on the house when he becomes the owner. Um, and uh, a special limited power appointment. Oh, I should mention that the life estate is subject potentially to uh, estate recovery in Maine. Now, we, um, the only significant asset that is not subject to estate recovery is a joint tenancy in real estate. And that was in our rules for many years. The rules got amended to eliminate that exclusion. And then the department decided to go back and try to get a grandfather. We were, we were asking for that to be grandfathered for any joint tenancy in real estate that was created before the rule change. And the department agreed and went to the legislature to get that changed and to build in a grandfather provision. And the legislature said, no, you never had the right to do estate recovery against joint tenancies in real estate because back at the time they they adopted estate recovery, they said joint tenancies in personal property, and they intentionally excluded joint tenancies in real estate. And I guess that was 
Medicaid planning by the legislature back in the 1990s, and it was uh, uh, intentional. And so the department went in to, to get a grandfathering that would allow them to do a safe recovery after January of 2006, and, um, and they got hammered, basically, in a hearing. And, uh, and so now we have explicit in our statute that joint tenancies in real estate are exempt from a state recovery. They're also exempt from, for eligibility purposes, uh, although there is a transfer penalty of the full value of the property if one creates a joint tenancy in real estate, uh, other than with the spouse, that is, um, or with a blind or disabled child, I guess, um, uh, during the look-back period. Um, uh, but anyway, the life estate is potentially subject to a state recovery. And, uh, and that, I think, is equally true whether it's a reserved life use in, the, in a trust or a re reserved uh, life estate in the deed. Um, but the question then comes down to valuation. And, um, uh, and we haven't had any test cases that have said you know exactly how that life estate is supposed to be valued. Our estate recovery rule is valuation at the m moment before death. I mean, it says immediately before death. Well, if it becomes a, a matter of appraisal, then any appraiser is going to say if this person was terminal and was just about to die, there's no value in that life estate. But what we have found is, and I haven't heard about this happening in the last few months, but a year ago summer, the, the estate recovery unit of DHHS was sending out threat letters to families who, whose loved one had died owning a life estate, and basically saying, your loved one has died, we have a claim of you know, $70,000 or whatever the benefits have been paid out, and uh, so uh, please settle up with us. And as far as I've heard, and we do a lot of communication among our elder law bar, um, in every case where they called an elder law attorney, and the elder law attorney started interacting with the estate recovery unit. The estate recovery unit backed off and said, well, we've changed our mind, never mind. And, but we can probably pretty much bet that what's happened is in the cases where they didn't get an elder law attorney involved, probably they've come out to some settlement, and the family has paid a bunch of money to DHHS, which they should have paid to us instead <laughs> to settle the case. Anyway, um, I'll move on. Um, if, if Ellen reserved a life estate to herself on the deed and applied for Medicaid in, an, in a state other than the state in which the property was located, how would your state characterize the reserved life estate? Well, if, if this actually is kind of the same question as if you happen to own property in a different state, and you're applying for Medicaid in Maine, how are they going to deal with that? Well, there are only a few exemptions. Estate, intent to return home does not count in Maine uh, for a situation like that because you can't be saying that you're a resident of Maine and applying for Medicaid and yet you're intending to return home to New Hampshire or to Arizona. Um, so that one doesn't work. But it could be income-producing property or it could be... Um, well, that's really the one thing that comes to mind. It could be income-producing property. Um, but the property out-of-state out would normally be a countable asset. Now, I have a case right now where the husband is in nursing home in Maine, the summer home, which really isn't habitable during the winter, but nevertheless his residence, 
And the wife, who's a Florida resident, or he used to be, uh, is maintaining their condo in Florida, and that's her residence. So we've got everything covered. And, uh, and they happen to also be in joint tenancy, so they were also exempt under that basis, and they're exempt from state recovery. So we've kind of got everything nailed on that one. But um, yeah, unless, unless there's something that, that protects the out-of-state property, it's vulnerable. Oops, sorry. Um, will inclusion of a provision in the trust granting the grantor, uh, granting the grantor or her spouse the right to reside in the property held in trust, cause the property to be considered accountable? That is the state's position right now. Um, that the uh, the right to live in the property is equivalent to a life estate, um, and we had one case in Maine recently that was resolved. I think short of a fair, no, I guess it was after a fair hearing, but it was unfavorable to the, um, to the homeowner. Um, but what happened was that the attorney involved was able to get some appraisals of the life estate, of the, of the right to reside in the property. And because of the woman's age and, and uh, infirmity, uh, the, the value was zero uh, from several appraisers. And so ultimately she won on the basis of valuation, but I think we have a dangerous area there right now. So I, in my trusts, don't put in the right to reside in the property because I think it's gonna be a problem. Um, preservation of homestead protection. We don't have a lot of homestead protection. There's a very small deduction from the, or exemption of portion of the value of the property for property tax, but it's such a small amount that that's not a, a driver in our planning. Um, if the house is sold and the proceeds retained in trust, will the proceeds be considered non-countable? No. I mean, well, they, they will be considered non-countable, yes. They will continue, because the trust was established more than five years before, internal stuff within the trust doesn't matter. And if capital gain is realized in the sale of the primary residence, will your state agency deem that to be trust income that is available to the grantor. Um, if it's a if it's a income only trust, yes. If it's a trust that is not an income only trust, then no. But in this case I said yes, so under the facts presented it was yes. What if the trust said that the, the trustee could decide that where uh, yeah, allocate between principal and income? Or what if the trust specifically said that capital gain was not to be considered trust income? Uh, that, you know, I, I, would be I, I would be worried about putting in a provision like that, but if the trust has already been established five years before, I don't know what the, whether the state would, what the state would do with that. You know, I mean, the trust is what it is in this scenario, and um, if it has that provision, uh, I just don't know how the state would even, uh, well, I, I don't know the answer. All right. Uh, can, can panelists have any comments on uh, the, I, I would be, take the opposite approach on that last point, um, and especially with the recent Doherty case, where that was where Mass Health spent a lot of time and energy saying that because the boilerplate, the trustee could allocate capital gains to income. That was a possibility of return of principal, and because of that mere potential that it could happen, it should all be included. The court didn't seem 
real persuaded. Right, real persuaded by that, but it's obviously a, a, an area of focus. So I don't want to leave it to the discretion that it could even be deemed that way. I would mm -hmm. want to say it's it's capital gain is all attributable to the principal. Right. Yeah, I, oh, I, I agree. I, I'm just saying I don't know what the court would do. Not what would I do today, but this trust was already drafted five years earlier, and I don't know what they'd say. What about other states? Oh, I think this is an area where you have to be really careful. Even if your trust is silent on the issue, state law may create the, the right to allocate what would normally be um, principal to income. Uh, it's, there's a statute in Rhode Island to that effect. And also, separately off that point, for, for those of you here from Rhode Island, regarding the residence, be careful if you come across a revocable trust. We, of course, have a grandfather, a revocable trust before December 1, 1990, can hold a residence. Um, oftentimes, um, the non-elder law practitioner will take a house in and out of that type of trust for refinancing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a special creature, and you proceed with caution. You don't want to blow that grandfather. In New Hampshire, I, I wouldn't put the house on an irrevocable, um, uh, irrevocable trust. Um, and, and actually, it's if it's in the jointly held between the spouses, it's not a countable asset. So, um, and it would come out of any type of revocable trust. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, for years, uh, irrevocable trusts were used, and it's just not not used, especially now that they're taking the position that they're taking. The right. Right. Diane? Um, just in general on the housing issues, if the house is worth more than um, $500,000, if the house is owned outright, then that Vermont uses the $500,000 limit. So if the house is owned outright or in the life estate reserved power of sale, then having a house worth $750,000 is a problem. Um, but if it's in the trust, then the value is not a problem as long as the trust was established more than five years ago and is irrevocable. Um, the, so the question becomes, which exemption are you going to use? Are you going to use the irrevocable trust exemption or the primary residence exemption? And for the out-of-state issue, um, we have a very similar thing to what Maine has. If the person is, who's receiving Medicaid has a primary residence in another state, that primary residence is counted at its full value. But if there's a spouse living there, then that lets it be exempt. Well, what so if you have this a, case, a life estate in uh, property that's in another state? Um, what, what, are, what will they do with that? If you had a traditional life estate? Yeah. Is it countable? Do they try to... Try to impute some value to that and make it spend it down, or in Connecticut they would request that you rent it to make it productive, and that's what they do with regular life estates, which is the vehicle we use. And I checked with my um, colleagues because irrevocable trusts are a bit uncertain and risky. Although we offer them to clients, I haven't got one to take me up on it, and they would rather go with good common sense to something that's tried and true, which is a simple. Plain vanilla, um, give the house to the children, reserve a life estate. The children can do an LLC or just leave it be, what, or, you know, et cetera. Um, the state, when the person, um, if they go into a nursing home, um, the parent does, the, and, and they're the sole remaining parent, um, then the <coughs> state wants them to rent the house and pay the net rent as part of their applied income contribution. 
So in Connecticut, I can answer the question. They probably simply want you to do the same with the out-of-state real estate. We don't have a uh, check the box, yes, I intend to return to my home. In Connecticut, the home is, um, if you, you have six months to get back there, if you don't make it, that's it, unless a doctor says, well, we can give you a little bit longer. And even then, you need a doctor's thing when you go into a nursing home for any length of time. It's reviewed, and they look at the medical data. So we, you know, houses for single people usually are listed for sale. We used to then do half a loaf. Now we're looking at caregiver agreements or other things if children are doing a lot of work. So it's kind of different. Connecticut, because of our real estate prices, believe it or not, actually went to $750,000 on their option. It only applies in the case of home care, since if you're institutionalized, number one, you got to sell the house anyways, because you're not likely to return home for most people. Um, but, but for spouses and stuff, it's not an issue, um, even if the house is worth $3 million. New York, New Jersey? Um, okay, there, there is a handful of differences between Maine and New York. <laughs> Uh, but we, we do agree that if uh, a residence is transferred into the trust, regardless of value, it's, the 750 rule is not going to apply because it's no longer owned by the, by the Medicaid applicant. Where we differ on this, and, and if I didn't hear this stuff correctly, just correct me, but the, if you transferred uh, a house into a trust and, and retained the life estate in the deed, this issue of intent to return home is a way of it not being treated as a transfer. Um, no, it's it's, it's not not the life estate not being treated as accountable asset. Okay, all right. Because in, in New York, it, it still would be a transfer. Yeah. It's countable, and it's countable. The value is zero for Medicaid eligibility purposes. The life estate interest. Um, if it's rented, then the net rental income is available for income budgeting. We're a spend down state. If it's not rented, then the DSS does not force you to rent it, and so we're, we've got some very, a lot of flexibility there. The joint property, 100% transfer. Did someone say that? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I okay. When we create a, a joint tenancy yeah. in real estate, unless it's with an exempt right person, it's a spouse or disabled or blind child that. The penalty is based on the entire value. Right. In, New, the value. in New York, if we added someone on and they owned it jointly 50-50, it's a transfer of only half of the property. Um, that's wild, what you just said. Well, we, uh, get the same, we get yeah. the same thing in New Hampshire. Yeah. Vermont does the same thing, too. It's really disappointing. I think it's okay. because you've taken the entire interest and made it all non-countable. You know, you've even though there are plenty of instances where we can make something count, take countable asset and make it non-countable in a way that doesn't cause a penalty, uh, in this particular case, they they say you're taking your interest in your house, you've made it made the house non-countable by giving away half, therefore the entire value is penalized. So why is it where where I struck? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just well, because of assets that are jointly owned. Uh, with someone who uh, real estate jointly owned with someone who refuses to sell is not countable in our rules. Yeah. There's a partition. Right, right. On, on, my reaction yeah, the partition. And for yeah. us, it's only not countable if the joint tenancy has been ex in existence for three years. <laughs> okay. Um, three years. On the recovery issue, um, holding a, a life, we don't have an expanded recovery situation in New York. So uh, we don't have any issues with recovery if it's a, a life estate interest or if it's in a trust. 
Um, the cap gain, uh, we, we would uh, have provisions in there and, and we would not want ever the capital gain to be treated as income, especially if it's right. an income only trust. Um, so we, we don't seem to have a problem there. Um, yeah, but what, the question is, what if the trust did have that provision, even though you wouldn't want to put it in, if the trust is already in existence for more than five years, and, and that's what's there, is right. it? Yeah, I, I think you've got to look at state law and see yeah. if you have trust provisions that tell you how to uh, determine what is income in principle, and, and maybe that would be helpful in that. But if your trust said that capital gain was allocated to principal, your not, state agency would honor that. Yeah, that's not a problem in New York. Um, the um, when you transfer property into a house and uh, into a trust and you retain a life estate, we value the transfer of the remainder interest based on tables, actuarial tables. Mm -hmm. And so, as a general rule, as a planner, I'm not retaining life estates in the deed, because I'm always concerned about a sale, and the only time I really would do that is if I think there's a, a likelihood that we're gonna need to file for Medicaid in less than five years, and the transfer would, even you knowing the start date, the transfer would be for, would be a, create a penalty of less than five years, then maybe I start to think about putting a life estate interest in the deed, but not not often. I mean, I struggle with that because I think it, there's a limited number of cases where that actually might happen. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm inclined to put the whole property in the trust and because of New York's rules, not in other states perhaps, you know, we're able to put this use, exclusive use of the property provision in there and that does it for us. Um, we're running a little bit behind time, so I'm just gonna go to the annuities, um, retirement assets um, uh, at this point, and Diane's going to give us a little bit of an overview there. I'm, I'm going to rush you a little bit, Diane, so talk All right. Um, basically, what you can do with annuities in Vermont is you have rules. If you follow the rules, the, the annuity is exempt. The rules basically say that you have to have um, actuarially sound return, the actuarially sound return is based on social security tables, not on IRS tables or anybody else's tables. The, the, the rate of return table is referenced specifically in the regulations. Um, can't be a balloon payment, has to be equal payouts in equal intervals. Um, we did have a discussion with Medicaid a couple of years ago that said if it's a fixed percent return, that's acceptable too. It didn't have to be a literal dollar amount that was the even amount. Um, and can't pay anyone other than the Medicaid applicant or the Medicaid applicant's spouse, even if the um, annuitant even if, even if dies prematurely. And the only way around that is you have to make Medicaid the first beneficiary on the annuity, and then you can have the children as contingent beneficiaries to take anything that's left after Medicaid's been paid off for care provided. Is that true even if the annuity is purchased by the at-home spouse? Yeah. And they, the way the regulation reads, it reads as an either-or. As long as you make Medicaid the 
primary beneficiary, you don't have to satisfy all the other rules about equal payments at equal times and actuarially, actuarially sound. In practice, they want both. They want the belt and the suspenders, because I've run around with uh, Medicaid about TIAA CREC accounts, which were clearly established as retirement accounts, and they wanted that assignment of the beneficiary status before they would approve. But it's not permitted. I don't think TIAA CREC's, they don't permit the assignments, do they? they TIAA let us do that. Of that um, beneficiary on that. Because I know that those were the, the accounts, because I remember running through this. These folks had five different accounts or six different accounts between them, and we had to change all of them before we could get Medicaid to approve the wife. So, um, and you know, that's a big change from our old rules, which was that they treated as a retirement account any annuity purchased more than three years ago. But that's long gone and much regretted. The retirement rules are that you have to take your minimum, if your retirement account is in payment status, the retirement account is exempt as long as you're taking your distributions at a rate that Medicaid approves of. And again, this is not, they don't use the IRS tables, they use the same Social Security table. And that means that the rate that assets come out of the retirement account is faster than what the IRS would demand and means that the assets can run out while the person is still alive. The way the IRS calculates their minimum required distribution is they recalculate them every year. If they're still alive, they're going to run for another year. <coughs> the way Vermont Medicaid calculates it, you better just live your life expectancy and not go any further because otherwise your money's going to be gone. But one thing that they've done which was odd and pleasant, was that what we had been doing is when the Medicaid recipient was, had an IRA, we were cashing the IRA or other retirement accounts, we were cashing those out because those had been treated as countable assets. They, Medicaid is now saying those are not countable and you don't have to retitle them into the name of the community spouse, that they're going to just count them as belonging to the community spouse without making the title which seemed like a very nice gift, and I don't know why they did it. Anybody want to comment on rules that are different in their own states, on the annuities uh, and retirement assets? Well, the retirement... You're commenting on yourself? That's beautiful. Go ahead. We don't use annuities very much in Connecticut. Our state has been hostile to them. Is there a pattern that you're getting yeah, here? Right. <laughs> they must. That's why you're sitting That's it. That's why. Um, although we don't have Elena, so I don't know. But in any event. Oh, maybe we do. You have a few barbers. Yes, we do. Um, and in any event, um, Connecticut... Has, has had a position, and we may have had a little bit of movement on it, but um, even annuities that are irrevocable, unassignable, actuarially sound, they initially took the position that um, there was still an income stream, and that income stream had value and was an asset, which just, you, you could never get out of this sort of circular arrangement. Um, in the negotiations, my understanding is there's some movement on that issue of if it truly is not, a, not available, they may only consider it an income stream and not an asset. Um, otherwise, our rules are pretty strict and they're set out in, in the materials. There's uh, 
Can you think of any changes beside that one? Any movement? No, I'm not sure if there's as much movement. As even as that. Right. Okay. Um, well, so the we're. The question was would they force the sale of an annuity that was annuitized? We, um, we often have issues forced, go ahead with me. And, and they may oh, be willing to I think we'll probably want to so, but I think basically you're Yeah, so, so we don't use them in particular. There have been a few cases where people had them. There was one case a number of years ago under old law where a superior court judge said that it was a sound annuity and the department had to accept it, but nothing has been done lately. Thank you, Gary. Well, New Jersey hates annuities. They have for years and years. Um, Currently in New Jersey, the qualified plan money, the IRA, 401k, is considered an available resource. We have a Supreme Court, state Supreme Court decision saying that. But right now, the you can annuitize within an IRA, and as long as you meet the requirements that it's non-assignable, irrevocable, actuarially sound to pay out within the life expectancy of the Medicaid applicant, and the state of New Jersey is the primary beneficiary, they say they will approve those applications. I haven't yet had one, so I wouldn't hold my breath. Um, they have um, argued that the annuity was not actuarially sound because the payout was too long. Um, they've argued that the annuity was not actuarially sound because the payout was too short. Um, they basically just hate New Jersey and annuities and when clients come in with IRAs and 401ks who aren't willing to annuitize them, I recommend they place in New York. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do and then I pass How the come I don't get any referrals Because they you? don't place in Long Island. Oh. <laughs> they place in Manhattan or Rockland County. I'll open an office. <laughs> they only need six. <laughs> Vincent, what about anything? Uh, well, in New York, York, real quick, uh, DRA compliant annuities are treated as DRA compliant annuities. Excellent. Oh, I, wow. I should mention, I have an annuity now where prior to their change in policy, the caseworker told us to change the beneficiary to the state and then it would be approved. So we did that. It's not an IRA annuity. So we did that and they denied the case. And so the client wants to go back to the annuity company and try and get them to at least cash it out. And the annuity company says, well, we probably would do that, but we need a release from the state. I have made six phone calls to the state, and I can't get anyone down there to agree to sign a release. So I now have a client in a very expensive nursing home with no source of payment because her only asset is this very large annuity. So, and the state will never get anything because they're not paying anything, but they won't sign a release. Um, and Nubian and annuities are used, you do have to name the state. Um, IRAs, um, you know, retirement accounts are accountable assets. And I, I'm going to give a plug to John. He wrote a great article in the New Hampshire Bar News past uh, a month on, um, on the use of annuities. But you summarized it well. Uh, <laughs> we don't know. We're just comparing notes here to see if any of us have had a, an IRA or 401k. Carol's back. <laughs> so, um, a Medicaid qualified annuity is uh, accepted in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, we know that uh, because the, the people, the lawyers at the policy level, don't like them. If if the annuity is, if you're annuitizing in aggregate more than three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars, we know that they are going to try to find a way to, you know 
dump that over and blow it up. Uh, the uh, uh, of, you know they don't like them too short either. But but. Uh, <laughs> Well, as far as we know, they have not done anything um, to stop the too short, but they're definitely complaining about it, and they're also complaining about if you're annuitizing too much. Well, I guess you know if you're annuitizing four hundred or four hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, uh, they deem that quote unquote abusive. But of course, there are no regulations, and you know they're they're governing by raised eyebrow at that point. But. Uh, uh, I don't. None of us up here in this group have had have tried to get an IRA or 401k um, qualified. And from my standpoint, I'd rather take a lump sum distribution, take the taxes, and then know that you're buying a you know a non-IRA, non-401k, and and know that you're getting a truly Medi Medicaid qualified uh, asset. You have to net out the income taxes, but at least what you have left um, is under that protection. Sure, just briefly, our annuity rules are, uh, mirror the DRA uh, law closely. Um, retirement accounts are treated separately. Uh, they are not treated as countable resources. Uh, only the income available under the uh, retirement account is uh, treated as countable income. And I had one other point, but uh, I'm not sure maybe escape it. Paul, tell us how lucky we are in Massachusetts. Well, Medicaid qualified annuities are one of probably the few tools available to the community spouse. Um, we don't need to name the state as the primary beneficiary in that context. I uh, don't really see it as much of a viable tool for the Medicaid applicant. Uh, pool trusts are becoming more and more used. Um, and IRAs are considered countable assets unless something happened recently that I don't know about the legislature. There's a bill pending, but uh, no luck there. Okay. I'm going to move to estate recovery. Uh, again, rushing you a little bit, Susan. That's okay. I'll run, run right through this. Um, in New Hampshire, you know, we did, I mean, obviously, like all states, they have estate recovery, and um, I would say they're very aggressive. Anything they can get their hands on, they will. Um, they will go against probate assets. Um, obviously, in, in terms of the probate, the administrative costs, attorney's fees, that kind of thing are taken prior to any distributions um, for the purposes of Medicaid. Um, it, it says here, number two, if, if uh, Porsche predeceases Ellen, which they consider Porsche's IRA, uh, which is to be paid into a revocable trust created by Porsche during her lifetime, I'm going to say um, available to Ellen. I'm going to say it depends. If she still names Ellen as the beneficiary, then yes. But if not, obviously by that time you would have hoped she would have changed the beneficiary then um, because they consider them individuals and she can um, make it payable to whoever they want. Uh, if instead of leaving the assets to Ellen, Portia leaves it to her entire state to her daughter, Medicaid can't recover against, um, against that either. Um, the priority over Medicaid liens would be administrative costs of, of the estate administration and um, attorney's fees associated uh, associated with that. Um, there's always, you know, in terms of jointly held assets, if, if, they're, um, if they have a, a lien against a property, which a person in this case, because they consider them an individual, they're always, as the, the other um, individual can always um, rebut the presumption of equitable interest by claiming that you know they um, provided all the care and cost and associated and everything with the property 
um, to reduce the amount. The one thing that I, I will have to say, even though in our state they're very aggressive, they also at the same time, you can negotiate with them in terms of um, payment um, on, on Medicaid liens. Um, the only time, sometimes I, I will tell you, sometimes they can't, you know, like anything, you know, they have a job to do, you know, we have a job to do and they can't see the trees through the forest. Like I have a case right now in which I'm trying to collect from an heir that stole money from the estate. Um, and unfortunately, there's a Medicaid lien. Um, so I'm never going to get money out of this person, but they won't release the lien. So I'm having, of course, now the estate has no money, you know, but we're having to forcibly pursue against this person because of, of this Medicaid lien. What would happen if you didn't? Just what, is, what is the lien on? Is it on, it's on the this, this, this judgment that we have against this, this heir? Is there personal liability? Well, I, I tried doing that. They would not accept it. Yeah. So are you pursuing it in order to be able to get a hardship waiver and get, get benefits because you're showing that you are, in fact, pursuing it? Even though there was a transfer, you can't get dead. when the person's dead. I was just going to say, can, can he <laughs> do that? Or for a spouse or something. Well, the thing is, is that you know, if you looked at the entire judgment in this particular case, there would be excess money that would oh, go would to the heirs. Okay. Um, there, but you know, the heirs don't care. You know, so the only people who care at this point is the state. Why don't you just let them pursue it? They won't accept responsibility on it. Well, what if you do nothing? What are they going to do? I don't know. I guess they could go after the fiduciary and claim that the fiduciary, you know, isn't, um, you know, doing their fiduciary duty, you know, with regards to the estate. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what, what do the panelists think on the, on the question of... I have been trying. <laughs> what do the panelists think on the issue of you've got um, a spouse in a nursing home, you've got a spouse at home. Um, leaving all the assets directly to the children when spouse at home dies versus leaving them in a testamentary trust for the benefit of the spouse in the nursing home who's on Medicaid. In New Jersey, um, we have an elected share requirement, and New Jersey Medicaid considers that if they didn't receive the elected share, they made a transfer of assets. But I wouldn't use a marital trust, I wouldn't use an elected share trust because we also have an expanded estate recovery, and there's some question as to whether or not the state would then have the right to recover against all of the assets in the trust or benefits paid to the Medicaid recipient, who was the beneficiary of that elected share trust. In, in Connecticut, we have um, in a Supreme Court case on this about um, testamentary income-only trusts. Our elective share rule is an income interest in one-third of the probate estate, only one of our few breaks. Um, and that state law, people are trying to expand it to help surviving spouses, and we go, you can't do it. You're going to hurt more people than you help. So um, the state, in general, um, goes after probate estates quite, quite predictably and, and aggressively, does not go after um, the remainder interest on life estates, and tried to uh, deny eligibility to a surviving spouse who is the recipient of an income-only testamentary trust and fortunately, the Connecticut Supreme Court said that's, you know, you can't do that. That's written right into the federal law. So um, that one was upheld. We have, we have no uh, expanded state recovery, but we do have an elective share statute. So if a transfer was made out to the children and more than one year expires, then it doesn't get pulled back in the calculation of the elective share. 
said we do have to think through, um, depending on the type of asset you're transferring, the whole situation, whether you're going to present yourself with a situation where if it goes into a trust, and you can only trust, it, it will get pulled back in for the elective share purposes uh, if there's a surviving spouse then needing Medicaid. So that, that's, a, that's a problem. Now, it's, if you don't exercise the, the uh, right of election, then it's a transfer, and so sometimes we'll exercise the right of election and then do uh, partial gift ERA planning, or we'll, we'll do some form of that. It's a way of protecting that one-third, or part, half of one-third. Right. Vermont just Im improved its whole intestate succession law and increased the amount of the elective share. And somehow, coincidentally, at the same time, Medicaid has now s initiated its first case against a will forcing an elective share um, where the beneficiaries were the children instead of the surviving spouse. Now, is Medicaid actually bringing the action to enforce the elected chair, or are they just saying... Oh, I haven't seen the paperwork on it yet. I heard about it at a seminar with one of the Medicaid people said, and now we're going to go do this. So... Um, about Rhode Island? Uh, in Rhode Island, I'm comfortable cutting out the surviving spouse. Our forced share is only uh, a life estate in real estate, so all you would create is uh, presumably an exempt asset. In theory, I do have some concern the failure to make the <coughs> election uh, is a penalty transfer, separate and apart from mm -hmm. uh, the resource issue. Um, but the state is not focused on it and not aggressive about it. And I think there are defenses to the argument also. So I am still um, comfortable cutting the surviving spouse out and leaving it to children. Marty? Um, our state is both aggressive and uh, pursuing it. And, um, and uh, our elective share provision came in, to, in uh, April 1st, 2007. Uh, and uh, my colleagues sitting behind me have had some of the first cases and have litigated those. And they'll be talking about this this afternoon, Patty Nelson Reedwell. So I'm going to let that go. But it is an issue. I would always set up a testamentary special needs trust for the surviving spouse um, as the best we can do at this point. Just as an advocacy note, um, Florida a couple of years ago passed a new statute that creates an elective share trust that is um, satisfies their elective share but is not countable for Medicaid purposes. And so if Florida can do it, Pardon me? Yeah, the income is not protected. It's, it's basically an income only. Uh, so if Florida can do it, then perhaps other states uh, should look to change the law on this. Just, just as a question to the other panelists, there are uh, well-respected attorneys in New Jersey who hold that the elective share is not necessarily an entitlement if one spouse has been in a nursing home more than a certain number of months, that that falls under our statute of living separate apart. And I'm just wondering if anyone else has, has, if your statutes are similar, if you've made that argument, that the fact that they were not cohabiting um, terminated the right to the elected share. I think there's an issue about voluntary Termination versus, you know, lack of capacity and you, you know, but. Um, when we're talking on the state recovery, I just have one quick thing. Connecticut has an odd statute um, for gifts called transferee liability, and it's not exactly a state recovery. But if you're the recipient of a gift, if your parents lived in Connecticut, watch out, um, and they make gifts to you and it turns out it's within the look-back period, technically there is a statute that says the transferees are liable 
It's a debt to the state of Connecticut, even if you've never even set foot within our friendly boundaries. And um, that has never, to my knowledge, been enforced. The state, I don't think, has the staffing to go after those gifts. But it's a very interesting and different take on this and um, also makes gift giving a little challenging. Yeah. So, Jean, why don't you talk to us about uh, the, the waiver in Rhode Island and also um, DOMO, which has been mentioned a couple of times during our discussion and where that's going to go. Uh, in August of uh, 2008, the um, state of Rhode Island applied to um, CMS for permission to radically alter its Medicaid structure. When I look at what they attempted to do, it seems to me it was an effort to fix this line item in the state's budget at a non-movable number. Um, in, in January of 2009, CMS approved the so-called global waiver uh, for a five-year uh, demonstration period. Uh, so it's over in uh, December 2013. Um, what, in effect, uh, is happening in the long-term care arena is that there are three types of um, benefits that are now made available institutional services, home and community-based services on a core level, and home and community-based services on a preventive, preventative level. Um, so those are your three types of benefits. In addition, the most radical change uh, comes apart in uh, the eligibility rules. Not only now do we have to grapple with what we're used to grappling with, financial and technical eligibility, but we also have to grapple with something known as clinical eligibility. And under clinical eligibility, there are three benefit groups. Um, interestingly enough, they've decided to characterize them as the highest, high, and preventive. Um, under, these, under the contact with the federal government, um, we have now, or in the process in Rhode Island, in establishing an Office of Medical Review. And that Office of Medical Review, which is staffed by nurses from the Department of uh, Human Services and the Department of Elderly Affairs, will make this determination as to whether or not an applicant, uh, who's now called a beneficiary, so I guess the uh, elder law and trust worlds are moving closer together, uh, whether or not that person is in one of those three categories, or which of the three that they are in. Um, there is a fairly extensive uh, litmus test as to how a person is characterized in uh, one of these three groups. Um, in my email is in the material uh, very recently at a meeting of the Rhode Island Elder Law Group. Um, attorney Jim Mullen, who is here today, handed out an excellent um, schematic flowchart, um, which I would bore you to death if I attempted to regurgitate it now. Um, but um, the tests are fairly extensive uh, to determine what group the beneficiary is in. I've butchered um, them in the following manner that if you need extensive assistance with activities of daily living, you're in the highest group and you're eligible for institutional care. If you need limited assistance with activities of daily living, you're in the high group and you're eligible for home and community-based um, core and preventative services. And last but not least, um, if, if you were to receive certain selective services that would improve the beneficiary's ability to perform all of their activities of daily living, uh, you're in the preventative group. Interestingly enough, the range of services allowed under the middle group, those that are in the high group and therefore eligible for these home and community-based core services, is very elaborate. Um, it runs the range from assisted living to um, shared living to companionship services to environmental modifications. 
the theme in these re in these uh, new rules, uh, separate apart from the budgeting goal, uh, appears to be in line with the movement in the national health forming movement to get involved uh, with the patient, so to speak, at an earlier stage, spend uh, smaller monies earlier on to defray larger expenses later on. Um, will it work? Well, I think it'll work from a budgeting standpoint uh, because the federal government is now going to fund us at a, a solid, non-movable number, so the state will know what it has to match. Will it work from a systemic standpoint? Um, who knows? Um, I'm, unfortunately, I guess I'm a pessimist on that issue. Um, uh, I just don't think government is up to the task of um, performing like an HMO. I don't think HMOs do it very well, so I'm not sure how a government will. Um, uh, what else can I tell you about this? Um, there's, for those of us in the trenches on this day to day, I, an interesting question is grandfathering. Um, we all have a bunch of applications in. Uh, there is um, an effective date on this of July 1, 2009, um, meaning that from and after that date, um, applicants will be judged or beneficiaries by these new standards. So I guess we'll be in the fortunate position to be able to tell the client, look, we did everything right with your assets. It's not my problem. You're not sick enough. <laughs> it would be nice to blame them for once. But in any event, um, I do think there's some ambiguity about the grandfathering. Um, as I read the compact that Rhode Island has with CMS, the only requirement to be subject to um, the old rules, the rules that we're all familiar with, the activities of daily living where you know, your doctor signed off that you needed assistance, uh, was that you, under this compact, you needed to be in a nursing home prior to July 1, 2009. And I read that compact as saying that even if you're private paying, you are okay. These regulations, uh, as they're written, are not clear to me in, in parts. Uh, they seem to suggest that not only do you need to have been um, in the nursing home as of July 109, but you also needed to actually be on, on uh, Medicaid. Um, so I, I wouldn't give that one up uh, too easily. I know it's, it's going to be a fight that I'm going to have on my hand and hands in a few cases. Um, that, that's really all I have to offer on the Again, um, email me if you'd like that flow chart. Um, I know that Jim Mullen is probably sitting here um, cringing in his seat because the tests, um, the tests and the range of services to, to different, differentiate between each group are really much more elaborate than, than I made them sound. But it's out there and it's something new we have to deal with at least in Rhode Island. All right, let's talk a little bit about, about DOMA so about, we make oh, sure we get that in there. Sure. Um, we've mixed our discussion um, about DOMA throughout the, the panel this morning. Um, what, I, what I think you should know about DOMA, if you've never thought about it um, before you came here today, and quite frankly, I never thought about it until I somewhat naively uh, agreed to do this topic. Um, first of all, I, I opened up the U.S. Code and read the statute. It's short. There are three sections. One gives it a name. The other says that the second section, which is actually number three, indicates that the states are free to define marriage any way they choose. And the real kick in the pants from the Medicaid standpoint comes in um, the second section. Uh, which says, in effect, for purposes of federal benefits, the definition of a spouse is a husband or wife of the opposite sex. So again, for purposes of federal benefits. Um, we've had court challenges, four to date that I'm aware of, and I updated my research last night. Two are out on the West Coast, uh, the 10th and uh, 9th Circuits. One has been dismissed, um, smelled, and the other is still languishing, uh, both for procedural reasons. Interestingly to note, interesting to note, 
that um, the one that was dismissed um, was as a result of some successful watering by the uh, Department of Justice under Obama. Um, they moved uh, the case from state court to federal court, and then they moved to dismiss in federal court, arguing the case was never brought in the federal court in the first instance. Um, the Obama administ administration caught flack over that because of his, um, his promises and his position on the issue that uh, DOMA was discriminatory and should be repealed. But nonetheless, apparently, I learned there's this time-honored tradition that the Department of Justice will defend any statute uh, uh, until it's, in fact, repealed. Um, do I see uh, legislative repeal coming anytime soon? I guess I don't is my answer, and, and um, my position is that, or my belief, rather, is that this will have to be resolved and we'll have to split the circuits at the Supreme Court level. Um, Massachusetts, of course, is leading the way uh, in the area of court action. There are uh, two cases that have been filed. The most noteworthy one was the one by the Attorney General. But before that, uh, a separate case uh, captioned Gill, Gill v. Um, something or other, by the plaintiff is Gill, uh, brought by an adv advocacy group, uh, in my opinion, seems to be the more well-grounded of the two cases. It argues on equal protection grounds that DOMA is unconstitutional, that DOMA creates two classes of married persons, um, and it's discriminatory in that one class of married persons um, is a f uh, denied essential uh, social safety net protections, um, like Medicaid. Um, but again, we'll need a split in the circuit, I, uh, I believe, uh, until the Supreme Court uh, decides the issue, which I think is just a matter of time. Um, in terms of uh, sort of the lay of the land uh, regarding uh, the states that are present here, there are five uh, that have legislation in the books uh, acknowledging same-sex uh, marriages, uh, unions, and the other three have uh, are neutral um, at worst. That, that's to say they have no express legislation of banning it. Um, okay, so what do we do as practitioners? Well, uh, we've got some good guidance, first of all. Uh, Massachusetts in 2004 uh, wrote to um, um, uh, CMS and, and said, hey, uh, they gave seven hypotheticals and said, what do we do in these situations in, in light of our state law, which acknowledges same-sex relations, and this federal statute, which it says that for purposes of federal benefits, um, uh, we can't acknowledge them. And to sum it up in those seven hypotheticals, in effect, um, what CMS said that the state of Massachusetts, or the Commonwealth rather, would be violating federal law if they denied eligibility based on an, on an analysis of the same-sex spouse as a community spouse. So again, uh, the state, the Commonwealth, would be violating federal law if they denied eligibility based on analyzing the same-sex spouse as a community spouse. Uh, they also concluded in that writing that federal funds participation, money from the federal government, would not be available if eligibility was allowed based on an analysis of the same-sex spouse as a community spouse. And lastly, there was a section on a state recovery to, uh, to which CMS said we, we basically leave that up to the states. So again, we have this federal statute. Um, I've pulled the uh, attorneys at the Rhode Island Department of Human Services, and they're taking the position that um, despite our attorney general's opinion that we do recognize um, same-sex uh, spouses in Rhode Island, those that are lawfully married in another state, that this federal law prevents us from analyzing uh, same-sex spouses as spouses for purposes of implementing our Medicaid rules. 
Um, so it's there. Um, the last thing I would say is take a look at your state's enabling legislation. I didn't know this until I looked at it, but our state's enabling legislation indicates that um, Medicaid benefits or, or medical assistance benefits are available um, regardless of federal funds participation is available in one discrete class, and that is if you are a resident legal alien residing in the state before 1996. So I, I don't have too many of those in my client population, so I, I think DOM is a problem for me. But um, it's there, and, and it's a problem. And um, I, I found it interesting that Paul noted earlier on that Mass Health, uh, in the last 12 months, has taken, you know, in effect, a contrary position, um, which is consistent with their challenge to it. But it's still federal law; it's a problem. Um. We have about 10 minutes left, and I, I want to reward those people who were so good to write their questions down. So um, let's just go through those. And if anybody else has questions, you can either send them down, or uh, Carol has the mic, and you can circulate that. Um, one question is with regard to using an irrevocable income-only trust and the taint that is used to um, ensure that you have a state inclusion for state tax purposes and step up. The question is, are you still going to do that after January 1st, 2010, when the existing um, rules go away? Um, personally, I don't think that's going to go away, but um, if, if that were to happen, would you draft differently? The I, well, I, I just hate um, answering a question in advance of the facts in front of me. So. Uh, asked the question in January because I, like you, Suzanne, do not believe there's going to be, uh, you know, this is not going to be the law come 2010. Okay. Well, you know, yes, the, the, I, I think you would be planning only for 2010 yeah. because yeah. come January 1st, 2011, we, we, we do something, probably revert back. So, so unless you have expiration dates for your clients, I'm not sure that you can. Wouldn't that be Okay. I mean, it could leave us in quite a bit of, of, of quagmire for a period of time in January because I, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't pass legislation before January 1st, 2010 comes. But not very far before. <laughs> Maybe I don't after. think they're but, but or after. I don't know how far after. Yeah. If they wait till March, you know, they, could, they yeah. could say, well, we have nine months to figure this one out. Um, my concern being, what about the people that have that pass away January, early January, and they need to sell property that's appreciated? What do we do in those? So, I, I mean, absolutely. Sorry, Are you talking really about the ones that. that were on life support through December? And they're just on the first of January. I mean, I, I, my assumption is for many people that we're talking about that you know they can get there's the capital gain. All right. So, um, if you ha if the house goes into the children's trust, the irrevocable trust, where the children are the um, owners of it, how do you protect the elder from being thrown out? We talked about using a life estate. Somebody mentioned using lease with rent. Are there other things that, that people do um, to uh, protect the elders against the evil children? Just a thought. Threatened to exercise that limited power of appointment and cut them off. Would there be a limited power of appointment in that so called children's trust, yeah. trigger it could trust? Be. Yeah, it could well, be. in Rhode Island, there would be. <laughs> you could put a, you know, 
getting a little aggressive, perhaps even in New York, but you could put a provision that uh, the trustees cannot sell without the consent of the grantor, or you could put a provision that uh, allows a third party to instruct the trustees to sell, or you could put a provision that says the grantor could instruct the trustees to sell. And I, you know, I think there are different degrees of risk in those choices, mm. and depending on how strongly the client feels about that issue, um, I think you draft accordingly. Okay. Um, I think we would be reluctant in Massachusetts to have the, the grantor retain the right to say whether or not the property could be sold after the Doherty case, although that still is sort of up in the air, I guess. Okay. In, in limiting the power of appointment, shouldn't the provision also exclude appointment to those for whom the grantor or spouse has a duty of support? From a tax standpoint, uh, the answer is yes. But from a from a Medicaid standpoint, I don't think it's an issue. They would care. Yeah, because our seniors don't really have a duty say, to support. Yeah, because I think they have a duty to support most of our senior clients. I suppose and if you had a house, if there was a but that's for lifetime powers of appointment, but you have to worry about that limitation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, who, who among the panelists, I assume this is, um, has the clients act as the trustee of their own irrevocable trust? I think we already talked about this, and it was only uh, Rogue, Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, well, of course we are. All right. Okay. David does it in Mass, too. He must be way out in the western part of the state. No, very close to Rhode Island. That's it. He's a borderline case. In Massachusetts, I haven't heard it as an issue, and I've heard quite a, I've heard people getting it through Mass Health um, currently. So they asked the question on the application, I always wonder why. So. In New York, are DRA compliant annuities subject to Social Security life tables? Is that how they're valued? The subject to the Social Security life table. Yes, yes you, you would tables. need to follow the Social Security tables. The okay. DRA specifies that. Anyway. Yes. You know, that's federal law. Okay. Well, we've heard, Marty, that that doesn't always mean anything. But that's the panel here. Federal law, actually. American has its own tables, and it requires them just totally ignoring what. Okay. Can Mass Estate, Mass Health, recover against a Medicaid recipient's real estate in another state? I actually had this situation. And um, there was no property left. It was a very convoluted property in New Hampshire that this uh, lady had inherited. So she owned an interest in that property. Um, and then after she died, um, they ended up selling it. And she had an interest. There was no assets, obviously, in Massachusetts. So I had the um, daughters appointed in New Hampshire. And then under Massachusetts law, uh, there's no duty to bring those proceeds back into the Massachusetts estate. So, unfortunately, the lawyer who represented them in New Hampshire felt like he had to copy Mass Health on everything that he did. So they they kept coming to me and saying, "We want the money. We want the money." And 
And uh, so what we ended up doing is I stated my position that they weren't entitled to it, which, you know, was not entirely black and white for sure. And, um, you know, they stated their position that they wanted the money, and we came to a compromise. So that was my experience. But they didn't put a lien on the property. You know, it's interesting that, that you say that, because I have a, I have recently completed a main ancillary probate for a Worcester County, Massachusetts decedent, and, um, and the attorneys in Massachusetts were informed by the court there that the proceeds of sale of property in Maine had to be turned over to the Massachusetts probate estate. Uh, and because th this man was just about to go into bankruptcy before he died, uh, unrelated for unrelated purposes. Um, anyway, um, so that's contrary to what you just said. Anybody else? What other um, Connecticut actually has said they don't have the resources to pursue real estate in other states, or at least they've said that in the past. So um, in the rare cases where it's there, sometimes we can get away with just listing it for sale during the person's life. Um, and then if it doesn't sell, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you're all right. Sometimes not. Have you had many? No. New Jersey has some kind of agreement with Florida where they mm -hmm. honor the Florida homestead exemption. So when I have a Florida snowbird who ends up in a New Jersey nursing home and we do a New Jersey Medicaid application, they consider that Florida property, which is still owned, to be an exempt resource under Florida's Medicaid laws, and they don't go after it. I don't know if they have that arrangement with California, which also has the blanket homestead exemption. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you uh, very Suzanne, much. What, what? Just one com uh, comment I want to make, because I'd be remiss to not mention to all of you practicing New York law that, I didn't say that, um, that the Durable Power of Attorney statute changed dramatically, effective September 1, 2009, and so they've completely turned upside down the statutory form and how it needs to be executed and the, where the provision should be put into the instrument for it to be valid. So I'm just, it's a warning out there for everybody. But they uh, grandfathered all prior powers. All prior powers. And can and you do non-statutory forms in New York? Or is this, and is this only, so? I think you can as long as they comply with the statute. But the statute is really quite cumbersome and complicated. Yeah. Did they turn it around again? I remember years ago, they, they used to make you sign for all the powers you didn't want, and then for a while you had to sign for all the powers you did want. Did they change that again, back well, in the other direction? They, the, the initialing is similar to the initialing rules before, but now oh, but the execution of the document has changed dramatically. So the agent now needs to sign the document as well. It has to be notarized. We have witnesses for a separate gift writer. I mean, we would need it, you know, some time here. I just wanted to throw out uh, that there was this change. So stop doing the York Towers of Attorney unless we know what you do. Retain counsel. Thank you, panelists. Great job. <laughs>